The last time I saw Johnny was the night of the Last Supper, I call it. Um, both of my other children were home, which was unusual, to have everybody there at one time. My daughter's fiancé was there, and we had a very nice dinner. Kids were joking around. They were having a great time. And um, Johnny said, I have to get ready to go to bed because I want to do my paper out in the morning early so we can go to the lake. And he was going to get to take his best friend. So he uh, said goodnight to everyone, gave me a kiss, and went upstairs. Pretty soon he came back downstairs. He came around in the kitchen, put his arms around me, and he gave me an extra kiss on the cheek, and he says, Mom, I really love you. You're the best. And he turned the corner and went up the stairs, and I never saw him again. Last time. Before I get into the details of this particular case that you may have heard at one time or another, I'd like you to just bear with me for a minute. I want you to just stop and go back in your mind to when you were just 12 years old, two months shy of your 13th birthday. Who were you then? What was your daily routine? What do you know about life now that you didn't know back then? For your average 12-year-old, life is pretty simple. You go to school, you come home, you live in a house with your parents, your siblings, your pets. So imagine for a second that you're that version of yourself. You're growing up in the early 80s in West Des Moines, Iowa. You live in a safe suburban neighborhood in a house with your mom, your dad, and your little mini dachshund. And you're a pretty normal kid. One thing you like to do is go and ride dirt bikes. So how do you save up to buy one of your own? Well, you do what a lot of other kids your age do when they want to make some pocket money. You take up a paper route. And then, sure enough, you're able to buy that dirt bike. All right, well, this paper route has turned out to be a pretty good idea. So you continue on with it, and you wake up before the sun on the Sunday before Labor Day. Get yourself out of bed, you get ready, head downstairs, and walk out the door. You cut through the backyard onto the next street with your red wagon in tow to carry a bunch of Sunday newspapers and your little mini dachshund tags along beside you. After you go pick up your papers, you and some of the other kids notice that something is off today. There's a car driving around the block, and in it is a guy that nobody has seen before. The guy rolls up to your group, shuts the engine off, opens the passenger door, he puts both feet on the pavement, and he asks you specifically, Hey kid, where's 86th Street? And you're getting nervous because this guy is creeping you out, so you point him in the direction of 86th, and then you start walking down the block in the other direction. Unbeknownst to you, there's someone else in the distance following you on foot. Once you start moving, the guy in the car starts his engine and drives off. As you turn the next corner, the person following you on foot cuts between two houses. Then the shady car rolls up to you again. And before you know it, the person following you reappears and you're being pulled into the back of that car. The car speeds off, blowing through a stop sign, never to be seen again leaving your red wagon and your dachshund alone on the sidewalk. This is exactly what happened to Johnny Gosh in the early morning hours of September 5th, 1982. And now it's more than 35 years later, and this is still an open case. And there's been no arrests, and nobody can say with any kind of certainty what became of Johnny. But that's not for lack of information or sightings over the years. And that just shouldn't be. So that's the mission of this series, 
We want to find out what happened to Johnny Gosh. My name is Sarah Dimio. I've been a filmmaker for about 12 years now. My production company is called Hell's Bells Productions. This is Faded Out, and I'll be your host. So you've probably heard the name Johnny Gosh at some point in your life, as his story has been a very highly publicized one since the day of his disappearance. But it is possible that you haven't, or if you have, it's only been in passing. Because I have to confess something. Up until January of 2017, I wasn't familiar with the name or the details myself. And that's pretty surprising, I think, considering Johnny was taken two years before I was born. You would think all people my age would have grown up with this story as a cautionary tale. Because Johnny was, by the way, one of the first children to have his picture put on the side of a milk carton, just like Aton Pates from New York. And the thing is, I think people from my generation, specifically those of us who were born in the 80s, were really the first generation of kids to be taught the concept of stranger danger. Not to say that kids older than me were never taught this concept at all, but not with the same sense of vigilance that people my age and younger have been. And it's because of horrible events like this making the news. I think in the 80s and prior to that, it wasn't unheard of for children to walk unaccompanied through the neighborhood or down city streets. I think that's why for me, as a child growing up in the 90s, I was always very resentful of the fact that I was never allowed to go anywhere alone, even if it was as simple as walking down the street. You don't see children walking through neighborhoods delivering newspapers anymore. That's another practice that phased out in the 90s. And I remember being six years old. A friend of mine's mom had a paper route. She being an adult, she would deliver papers through our town of Bristol, Connecticut in her car. And one day I got to tag along and my friend and I had so much fun helping with the route. Whether we got to go stick papers in mailboxes, some would go just inside of screen doors, it was a fun game, and my friend's mother would hand one of us a rolled up paper and point to the house that it had to go to, and I guess it doesn't take too much to keep two six-year-old girls entertained in the early 90s. So as a young child, delivering papers always seemed like such a fun activity, and I had hoped that when I got a little older, maybe I could have a paper out, even though I never did. But at six years old, to imagine going around delivering papers all by myself seemed like such a big kid thing to get to do. The disturbing thing to me when I look back on that now is that at the time we had that fun afternoon and I thought I would be so cool if I had a paper route, Johnny had already been missing for nearly a decade. And that brings me back to the innocent mindset of a child living in your bubble. And keep in mind, Johnny was taken in 1982. There were no Amber Alerts back then. The response from law enforcement in an event like this in 1982 is not the response from law enforcement that you see today. Laws on how missing child cases are handled were changed across the country because of what happened to Johnny Gosh, and that's largely to the credit of his mother, Noreen. And we'll talk about those changes in a later episode. In 2014, a production company called Rumor Incorporated released the documentary Who Took Johnny, which is now available on Netflix. And I've been emailing back and forth with the film's director, David Bielinson, and I had hoped that I would have an interview with him to share with you to kick off our first episode, but 
we had conflicting schedules this past week, so I am working on getting his perspective for you very soon, though. I do highly recommend the film if you want to learn more about Johnny Gosh and the fight that his mother, Noreen, has had to pursue for all these years. I'm giving Who Took Johnny this little plug because if you're not familiar with Johnny's story, you might think that that is where it ends. But more so than anything, this is really where it begins because from this point on, a whole dark world hiding in plain sight begins to come to the surface. Uncovering all that followed is really to the credit of Noreen Gosh. She first realized Johnny was missing when she and her husband, John Sr., started getting phone calls from the neighbors complaining that their papers hadn't come yet. When she called the police, it took them 45 minutes to get to their house, when the police station was only 10 blocks away. But during those 45 minutes, Noreen is not waiting by the phone. She's out on the street. She's talking to neighbors, finding out who were the last people who saw Johnny. So in the 45 minutes it took police to get there, she already had a description of the car, a light blue Ford Fairmont. She also had a vague description of the guy driving the car, the guy that Johnny had a bad feeling about, a stocky Hispanic man. So put yourself in Noreen's shoes for a minute. I can't even imagine it. You have a nice suburban life, husband, kids. Then one early Sunday morning before the sun is up, you're probably not even awake yet. Long before you know anything has happened, everything has changed for you forever. And this event that you're not even aware of yet has changed the course of events for the rest of your life. Would it ever occur to you before you go to bed the night before that this could be the last time you ever see your son again? It is widely believed that Johnny was sold into a child sex trafficking ring, and this is where the details get dicey. Because one thing I learned quickly when I started researching Johnny, it does not take long for this story to go off the rails. So if you ever decide to do your own research online, I advise you check every source that you read. Do not take anything and everything at face value. I do believe it's true that Johnny was sold into sex trafficking, and that's primarily because of one person who could corroborate the story, and that person was Paul Benassi. In 1989, Benassi came forward with this story. He said that he himself was lured into a sex trafficking ring as a child, and that he had been forced to participate in Johnny's abduction. And he maintains that he was in that blue Ford Fairmont at the time Johnny was taken. But here's the kicker. Police who were investigating Johnny's case chose never to question Paul Benassi. At the time that he came forward, Benassi was in prison in Lincoln, Nebraska on child sex assault charges. He was also diagnosed with multiple personality disorder. And in addition to that, the cops kind of just didn't want to deal with Benassi. They would often just write him off as a pathological liar. But there's a catch here. Noreen was able to go visit Benassi and get his account from him in person. He knew details about that morning that were never made public. 
that were only found out through a private investigator hired by the Goshes. Here's Noreen during an appearance on KCWI in Des Moines in April 2015 to promote the premiere of Who Took Johnny. In 1989, a young man by the name of Paul Benassi came forward. He was being uh, arrested and put in prison for another crime. But he told his attorney, he said, I helped kidnap Johnny Gosh. Mm. I was the one in the back seat. Mm. And he told exactly what happened that morning, but he knew about the van that was parked several blocks away. Mm -hmm. And it was our private investigators that discovered that after they went house to house doing an interview with each family in about a two-mile radius of our home. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the police didn't do any of those interviews. Our men did. When our men got to this one house, the man answered the door and said, oh, thank God you're here. Mm -hmm. And they, he thought it was the police. Oh. So he began telling the story that he heard a motor running outside when he got up to get a drink of water. He went to the window and he was watching and he saw this kidnap car pull up, which he, at that point, he did not know there had been a kidnapping. Mm -hmm. Sure. Saw them transfer a body to the car. Oh my goodness. So he called police. Right. Nobody ever came to talk to him until our investigators got there. So when our investigators discovered this information and brought me the report, they said, bury this. Hmm. You do not share it with anyone. Not the press, not the police. They wouldn't go out and do the interviews. If anybody in the future ever comes forward and knows about that van, you know that you will be dealing with somebody that's telling the truth. Ah, okay. That was okay. his reasoning. Okay. He had worked other kidnapping cases before and found the children, so we listened to him. Mm -hmm. And so when Paul Benassi came forward and knew exactly where the van was parked and what transpired, we knew he was telling the truth. It's important to note, too, that Paul Benassi's story regarding Johnny has never wavered over the years. He's always maintained that after they transferred Johnny into that van, that he was then taken over state lines into Nebraska. And on a day that Johnny had planned to go to a lake with his best friend, what would actually happen that day is he would be forced to engage in sex on camera. In 1982, in America's heartland, child sex trafficking is not something anyone ever thought existed. People think, that's not something that could ever happen here. That's, that's the kind of thing that only happens in R-rated movies, or at the very least, something that happens in some godless place far, far away from our quiet town. But turns out, that's not true anywhere. No city or town in America, or in the world for that matter, is immune to having monsters roll in. So coming up in our next segment, we'll talk a bit about the resources. Who are the organizations out there looking to help these victims? I'll speak to Della Williams and Tracy Pampina of the Missing Persons Support Center. That's up next. A lot of organizations out there that are set up to help find the missing or to try to give a name to the unidentified. And when I first started to research Johnny's story, 
Ultimately, among all my Google searches, a lot of these organizations' names would pop up. And the first one that I would see most often is the Doe Network, an organization that works to match missing persons cold cases with John and Jane Doe's. And we'll get more into the Doe Network on our next episode. But I mention them now because I wanted to become a volunteer with them. So I had reached out to them, and that was when I heard back from Della Williams. She's a police dispatcher from the St. Louis, Missouri area. And since I first made contact with Della, she's moved on from the Doe Network, and she's teamed up with Tracy Pampina, a workers' comp claims adjuster, and together they've created the Missing Persons Support Center. You can find the Missing Persons Support Center on Facebook. And I had a chance to speak with Della and Tracy, and I asked them what the goal is in creating a new organization. Here's Della Williams. One of the things that I noticed, and I'll let Tracy tell her part, about there are a lot of different missing person websites that um, will tell you who's missing, who's unidentified, um, but they don't really offer support for family, law enforcement, or anything, you know, like the family to navigate through the law enforcement system or to navigate through social media or news media. Um, they don't really concentrate on, like, the homeless or sex trafficking, which both are very um, relevant to missing people. And so for me, I wanted to start including um, the missing and the sex trafficking, but I also wanted to help families navigate through how to talk to law enforcement, how to get them to help you, um, utilizing social media and news media and just things like that. Um, as a tool. We talked a little bit about how out of all the organizations out there dedicated to finding the missing, there really aren't that many with a focus on the families. We also very early on in our conversation got into the topic of social media. Social media is a double-edged sword and that's to be expected when you have the ability to communicate with anyone on the planet within seconds and literally within the palm of your hand. Here's Tracy Pampina. The other part of it, too, is that a lot of the companies, the, the organizations that are out there right now, a lot of them are just behind the scenes. They're not actually out there working with the families. They're, you know, they're posting their flyers. They're, you know, they're really just hitting social media. So they're not actually out there working the community with the families. It is for sure a good tool, but I also believe, and after, after you know, Seeing things, you know, and dealing with, you know, different organizations for missing people, that a lot of the families actually want someone to be there. You know, they want that shoulder to lean on. They want somebody to trust because a lot of times, you know, if they do feel shorted, you know, for some reason or they can't get any help, that you know, they can't get a private investigator, they don't have the funding, they, you know, they they want to they want that actual body. Yeah. not just, you know, people sharing the flyers. But the word support means more than just a shoulder to lean on. There's also a very pragmatic meaning to it. So imagine for me again that you have a child or a loved one who is missing. You want the cops to find your kid right now, not next week and definitely not years or decades from now. And you want your kid to be found safe. Well, unfortunately, real life doesn't work that quickly. Even now, with everything we just mentioned, being able to put a blast out on social media, having an Amber Alert sent directly to your phone within minutes, you have to remember that these are humans working the case. And they're doing everything they can. 
because that's their job. Here's Della. So hopefully get one to three volunteers per state and everybody goes through um, advocacy training and then, you know, we, they can all discuss what type of programs they want to start in their communities and in their state and things like that. Um, but like Tracy said, we want to make sure that we're able to reach out to the families, offer them some sort of comfort if we can, if, if we need to be the liaison between them and law enforcement. Because there, there is kind of in some missing person communities, there's a huge gap between law enforcement, uh, communicating with law enforcement and the missing person. And, and so hopefully um, we can bridge some of that and, you know, maybe be the buffer between, um, since I've been in law enforcement for a long time, I kind of know a little bit more how to deal with them. You know, you can't just go up to an officer and start calling them every name in the book and tell them they're stupid and they're not doing their job. They'll shut down and then you'll get nothing. Whereas yeah. if you go in and, you know, say, I appreciate your hard work, can you help me, you know, they're going to be more apt to, you know, do what they can. I mean, not that they aren't going to do their job, but once someone crosses a line as far as um, just bashing them and things like that, then the cooperation, even though they're working on the case, mm -hmm. is probably not going to be as good as if the family was decent. That brings us to an interesting point as far as law enforcement is concerned. And this is without question something that applies to Johnny Gosh's case. A lot of the time we tend to think that we, as the general public, have a right to hear every detail, every development in an ongoing case. But here's the thing. In an ongoing investigation, police can't tell us everything because that jeopardizes the case. And I will concede that doesn't mesh well for people who are looking for answers. But that's where the problems start to brew, especially now and in recent years with cops under such intense scrutiny. We, we look at people in uniform, and I do this myself, and we feel an automatic distancing. It's a feeling of us versus them. So take that general discomfort with law enforcement and combine it with a 35-year-old cold case. Cold cases, just by their nature, are fodder for mystery. I mean, maybe that's why I'm so interested in Johnny's case, because it's morbid curiosity. But it also widens the gap between the cops and the people. They must know something. But the truth is, maybe the reason they're not disclosing every lead they get is because that's their job. And you can tell this is a talking point for me, because as you'll hear right now, as Della is explaining this, I nearly cut her off and hijack the whole conversation. Law enforcement is under such a, almost like the hostels are under such a shadow where everything is secret, secret, secret. And so um, due to their liabilities and stuff, they're not able to just talk about everything. And, and that is misconstrued a lot of times as if, A, they're not working on it or they don't care when, in fact, um, they just really can't, even to the families, because, you know, yeah. even though the family should know everything, there's things that they can't know if it's going to mess up the case. Yeah. And, well, I think um, another thing that gets misconstrued that uh, I think a lot of times people tend to think that if they're not telling you everything, there must be some kind of a conspiracy or something going right. on. Like there must be like, right. they're like they know something and they're, they're hiding something or they're protecting somebody. And it's, I think uh, that's unfortunate with a lot of, a lot of these cold cases, especially mm -hmm. is that, um, you know, uh, like a story, 
exists for so long and it's um the just the the sheer passage of time it sort of creates a lot of like conspiracy theories and a lot of there's a lot of mystery and intrigue that starts to surround it and um i think unfortunately the law enforcement does get a, a bad rap a lot of the time because mm -hmm. i think uh, people uh um have like a, a general mistrust of of law enforcement a lot right. of the time Missing Persons Support Center is unique in that they're the first missing persons organization that I personally have been able to find that makes a conscious effort to bridge that gap. So I encourage you to follow them on Facebook if you have a family member who is missing or if anyone else you know is going through that. There are, as I mentioned, a lot of organizations with a goal to find the missing, such as the Doe Network. There's also NamUs and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And we'll be delving more into each of these names in a later episode. There is a reason I chose to highlight Missing Persons Support Center and these other long-standing names in my first episode. I want us to utilize them. I said in my intro to the episode that we want to find out what happened to Johnny Gosh. And that's exactly what I'm charging us all to do. There's an adage that you hear a lot when working in this type of field that goes, someone out there knows something. So if we can collectively come forward with information, I feel like this case doesn't have to carry on forever with no ending. And it has happened before. So if you ask me, I say there's no reason it can't happen again. We'll be hearing from Della Williams and Tracy Pampina a lot more through this series. I'll be back next week and we'll delve into the Doe Network and how they operate. We'll also talk about how law enforcement protocol has changed between 1982 and now when pursuing a missing child case. Until then, you can tweet me. My Twitter handle is Sarah E. Dimeo. That's S-A-R-A-H-E-D-I-M-E-O. You can also email me at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. Before I close, I have to admit, with all the films I've made and other projects I've worked on, one thing I've never been particularly good at is coming up with titles. So I cannot take credit for coming up with Faded Out. I had crowdsourced an idea for a title in a Facebook group that I'm in, and a friend of mine, Tiffany, suggested Faded Out, and I loved it. So thank you, Tiffany. Thank you also to Della Williams and Tracy Pampina. We'll talk to you ladies again soon. This podcast is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. This has been Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio.